The MLB All-Star break has arrived. Let the festivities begin in Seattle with the Home Run Derby tonight, followed by the All-Star game tomorrow. Is the Derby actually more watchable than the game itself? I'll take a look at what happened over the weekend in baseball as we close the book on the quote-unquote first half of the season. The NBA in-season tournament has been released. I'll break that down. And do I really have to discuss this Victor Wembenyama britney Spears encounter? Or that he scored 27 points in a summer league game last night? Some buzz at Wimbledon with controversy surrounding Victoria Azarenka as she was booed at the All England Club. And a big trade in the NHL as a two-time 40-goal scorer is on the move. Not much to chew on when it comes to sports during this dead zone, but you know I'm always ready, willing, and able to step to the plate as your source for all the sauce in the world of sports. It's all coming up, but first, this message. J Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the J Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour, where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it, and with that said, let's get it, the J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The sports rebel without a pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I got to call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rills Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? I hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. As summer continues to sizzle, the sports universe needs to catch up as the weather has dried up on what's gone on over the past week or so. But nevertheless, I got you covered on all the latest of what the landscape has to offer as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And yes, not much to really get into in this barren wasteland of sports. Yes, there are a couple of things that we could discuss. Maybe a little bit more than what we touched on Thursday because that was probably one of the shorter podcasts that I've had. About 37 minutes, which is fine because I'm not going to babble about something that's useless or just to talk sports just for the sake of it. And even though that's what I do, but I'm not going to manufacture or dredge up some old stories just for the sake of filling in an hour So obviously, I want to get you guys not only concise, but entertaining and informative sports talk. And let's kick it off with baseball because the All-Star break has finally come. And as I mentioned in the opening, with the baseball world now focused in on Seattle, and even the sports world for that matter, because tonight you have the Home Run Derby, which I have to say, over the last few years since they've changed their format, and they've made it to where it's not by... The amount of outs made, meaning that whatever you don't hit over the wall in fair territory, it's counted as an out. 
Now there's a clock and a time limit. And of course, you can call a timeout, which makes it that much more exciting and even that much more drama-filled because if a player needs to get five more home runs and he has called a timeout with about, I don't know, 35 seconds left, and therefore a little bit of suspense builds and the player shakes it off, sips some Gatorade, gets back in the batter's box and see if he could rake those five or six home runs to either surpass, take the lead, or even win the whole tournament. So for what that's worth, and again, it is just a home run derby, but I think over the last half decade, it's been that much more enjoyable to watch than the All-Star game itself. Because dating back to God knows how long, the All-Star games have been an absolute snooze fest. And to think, six days from now will be the 10th anniversary of the game at City Field, which I attended and I've talked about several times here on the podcast. And I won't go down that road again. But that was a game that you might as well watch paint dry. And it's pretty much been the same ever since then. You have not had a lot of action, not a lot of home runs, not a lot of just in-game, other than maybe the interviews with the players on the field. But nothing really to sneeze at or write home about when it comes to the All-Star game itself that, to me, tonight takes precedence over the game because of what has happened here over the last few years with the way the event has really taken off and has become a spectacle for the baseball fan to see. And there's no other way to slice it, cut it, etc. Now, I'm not going to get into the contestants. I know that Pete Alonso, the Mets, he's going up against Julio Rodriguez, which, of course, is the native son there in Seattle. So that should be some drama right there off the bat, knowing that Alonso has won the tournament twice and Rodriguez, one of the up-and-coming stars in baseball. So we'll see how that shakes down. But other than that, I'm not going to sit here and tell you who's the favorite who's going to win, who's a dark horse, etc. Because when it's all said and done, does anybody really care who the winner is? And yes, people are going to say, well, you just brought up Pete Alonso, Jay Reels. I get it that he's a Met. I get it that he's a guy that, of course, I root for from afar. But it's not as if I'm turning on ESPN at 8 p.m. to watch every pitch, to watch every home run. I'd rather watch the highlights and spend 10 minutes as opposed to two and a half hours to watch a home run derby to where by the time the All-Star game is over with, it's forgotten. So that's just me, maybe to the younger fan or to another baseball fan, they may look at tonight and gravitate toward that, knowing that it's a lot more interesting than the actual All-Star game tomorrow, other than maybe the introductions. But that's what you're going to have here over the course of these next two days, where tonight it's going to be heightened with all the hype and the hoopla surrounding the home run derby, and tomorrow it's just an afterthought. It's almost as if they should have the All-Star game tonight, and then the home run derby tomorrow, but of course that's not going to make any sense. But the thing is, is that to me, tonight is more highlighted and more pronounced than the actual game itself with all the all-stars in tow there in Seattle. And it's interesting because I was doing this math and I understand that nobody really cares when it's all said and done. But I did think about this where the all-star game back in 1979 where Dave Parker was the MVP of the game, and I understand he deserved it, but as a Met fan, and of course the Mets were awful during that stretch after they traded Tom Seaver from 1977 to 83 before Doc Gooden was brought up to the major leagues 19 years of age in 84, and the Mets went on their ascent from that point on for the rest of the decade, culminating with the 86 World Series, as we all know, but I digress. But in 79, Lee Mazzilli, who had the game-tying home run over Jim Kern in the ninth inning, and then had the... RBI walk with the bases loaded 
to where the National League won, I believe the score was 7-6 or maybe an 8-7, where I thought maybe Mazzilli could have won the MVP, but instead Dave Parker, he had that big throw from right field where he threw out Brian Downing at the plate. But that was 79, and then fast forward 22 years later to where the game was now from the old kingdom to Safeco Field, where that was Cal Ripken Jr.'s final All-Star game. If you remember, Alex Rodriguez, who started the game at short, then moved over the third to have Ripken come in at short. That was the highlight. And of course, Tom Lasorda, if you remember, I believe there was either a broken bat or a bat from a hitter that swung and missed. And then the bat went flying down the third base line to where you saw Tommy Lasorda flop on the field where you got a little bit of comic relief. And that was the highlight of that game. And then now to think 22 years later, you're going to have the All-Star game, which is now called T-Mobile Park. So for whatever the reason, you have some synergy there where over the last 44 years, 79 to 2001, 22 years between All-Star games, and now 2001 to 2023, 22 years between that All-Star game and this one. So for what that's worth, if you want to chew on that for a little bit as a baseball geek, statistician, etc., well, that's what you got there going into tonight and tomorrow when it comes to this All-Star break. And then the season will resume there on Friday. But of course, we'll talk about more of the second half on Thursday, as I mentioned last Monday's podcast, because how I look at this first half and how it ended, and we could talk about teams, the disappointments, the surprises, which I won't do because I've pretty much been doing that over the course of the last four or five episodes, getting into the teams that have not played well, that have certainly played below their standard that have underachieved so far this year Mets Padres etc and then the teams that have overachieved obviously the Reds even to a certain degree I won't go as far as Tampa but the way they played this year a lot of people didn't think that maybe they would have had the start that they did and would continue to be in first place in the AL East you could also throw in the Orioles as a team that now we'll get to them in a minute but as we take a look at the weekend and some series that are of note And I'll start off with Atlanta and Tampa where the Braves won the first two games of the series and made you think that the Braves are by far, as I talked about on last Monday's podcast, the best team in baseball. And we saw that there in a close game on Friday night where Sean Murphy had the two-run homer to pretty much be the game-winning. And that was early on in the game. I think it was in the fourth inning. But the Brave bullpen held on. They end up winning 2-1, and then they had a 6-1 win there on Saturday night before losing 10-3 yesterday. Does this series stamp the Braves as the best team in baseball? I'm not going to say that because I thought about that a week ago heading into that series, and if Tampa was going to make any type of hay to, let's say, even squash that, they didn't really do so. They actually came into that series stumbling, bumbling, and fumbling, as I like to say, and Tampa has really gone out here in this final couple of weeks heading into the All-Star break, I'm sure that's one team that's looking forward to it, knowing that that they've been in front throughout, and now they're actually tied in the loss with 35 losses with the Baltimore Orioles, which I'll get to in a second, but the Braves at 60-29, and best record in the sport. Tampa, obviously still formidable, still a team that I would think is going to have World Series aspirations, but they have not played well here over the course of the last couple of weeks, and that's shown... So now as they regroup and get ready for a second half where it will pick up on Friday, the Orioles are flying high. They go into Minnesota, a team that's in first place and granted first place by the slimmest of margins and of course with a record going in 45 and 43, now they're a game under 500 where the Guardians 
are now at 500 at 45 and 45 and have a first place lead in that weak AL Central. But the Orioles, here they are with all their young talent that they brought up here just in the last couple of weeks. The Colton Cowses of the world. And we all know about Gunnar Henderson earlier this year. Adley Rutschman. I know they're pitching. They're going to need some reinforcements there. Although their bullpen is good. But starting pitching is where they're going to really have to emphasize as far as the trade deadline, which will be in a couple of weeks. But give it up for what Baltimore has done. Like I mentioned, tied in the loss with Tampa. They have a four game in hand. Because with Tampa at 58-35 and the Orioles 54-35, they are certainly in the driver's seat to maybe even overtake the Tampa Bay Rays when it's all said and done. Now granted, we still have what? 70 games to go left in the season. Really, when you look at the Orioles, they got 73 games left. And then the Rays doing the math, 69. So still plenty of baseball to be played, but the Orioles are really going to look to see if they can make a push, not only for the top of the AL East, but also think about this, they would have a bye in the first round where the wild card will have their best of three before moving on to the division series. So I wonder if the Orioles and manager Brandon Hyde are focusing in on that. Way too early to tell, but still something to shoot for for an Oriole team that a lot of people thought they would take a step up and they have done so and then some this year considering the way they played from the latter part of last year, really from the All-Star break, Last year, up until this point this year, they have really turned around the fortunes of that franchise and good for them. So you had those two series that were crucial, especially there in the American League East. I'll stay there for a second, only because the Yankees had a bad week this week. Think about this. They had the Orioles come in last 4th of July week. They won the first two games in come-from-behind fashion. Four game set where the Orioles lose the first two. So you're feeling good if you're a Yankee fan. Maybe if you get one of the next two, you could get two games in the standings. And if by any chance you swept the Orioles there, you'd be tied for second place in the AL East. But ever since they won that game on the 4th of July, they have lost four or five. They lost a back two to Baltimore, including a 14-1 thrashing there on Thursday night. And then Carlos Rodon, who finally made his Yankee debut there on Friday night, Didn't pitch bad, but he gave up one bomb to Cody Bellinger and his offense, the Yankee offense that is, was already taking their all-star break because all they were able to muster up against their former teammate and a one Jamison Tyon was one hit over eight innings. And this is a guy that came into this game with an ERA well over six. And the Yankees couldn't even muster up a run, let alone a hit. As they got shut out there by the Cubs, they did bounce back there nicely on Saturday, but then yesterday with a 4-1 lead heading into the seventh inning, it all fell apart thanks to Gleyber Torres, who I would not re-sign if I'm the Yankees, and I understand that his star has fallen so far off considering all of the hoopla surrounding him coming into the major leagues as a key component in that trade for Aroldis Chapman, and he had a couple of big years there in 2018-19, and he is just... Gone south ever since then. So if I'm Brian Cashman, and I even talked about this last year where they probably should have traded him, I wouldn't bring him back if I'm the Yankee GM. But as you saw there, a big error led to a big inning and six runs over the final three innings as the Cubs win two out of three in Yankee Stadium. And the Yankees go into the break losing four of five. And not only that, but go from a chance to even maybe get closer to second place, fall to fourth place. And in the process, they fire their hitting coach, which to me, what does that do? 
Here's a guy, Dylan Lawson, who I wouldn't even know if he fell on me. And we all know that the problem with the Yankees, as a team, we get it, that they're not hitting. They batted, I believe, 218 since Aaron Judge had left with that toe injury at Dodger Stadium. But we all know that the straw that stirs this drink is number 99. And sadly, with him being out, and who knows when his return is going to be, that the Yankees may continue this slumber of not being able to hit out of a wet paper bag. And I don't know who could go in there. We could probably dig up Babe Ruth, and that's not going to do anything for this Yankee offense. So a lot of questions that are going to have to be answered by Brian Cashman, and we get it that there had to be a fall guy here, but please, Dylan Lawson, he's the guy that they're going to axe here right before the All-Star break as a shakeup. Not really the Yankee way. I understand if George Steinbrenner was there, but maybe they're trying to do something to rattle the cage, but I don't think that's going to be it because this Yankee offense has really been from hunger here over this stretch of games, and let's see if they could bounce back considering that I believe they start in Colorado right out of the break, which may be the panacea for the hitting woes, but we'll wait and see how that takes into shape. But then you also have, sticking with the American League, the Mariners had a big weekend winning three out of four over the Astros, and that was big for them. I understand the Astros were inching closer to the top spot, and the Rangers had a bad weekend losing two out of three to the Nationals. So you wonder if the bloom is starting to come off of that rose in Texas, although I think they'll be in decent shape. But without Jacob deGrom and their pitching, who I know has not necessarily been in shambles, but have not been well here over the course of the last couple of weeks, But you wonder if the Rangers are starting to spring a few leaks here. And even with the Astros not playing well, although they had a very good week last week where they beat the Rangers 3 out of 4, but we'll get to see how the AL West will take into shape as the Astros, they've been hurting too. No Altuve, as we know, as he's out with an oblique. And we know their pitching is not intact there, as we talked about there over the last couple of podcasts. But that's going to be an interesting race to see how Texas and Houston and even Seattle, if they could... Use this as a springboard into the second half as they've been one of the teams in the sport that have underachieved here throughout the course of this 2023 season. And then in the National League, you had a big series in Milwaukee, which I didn't talk about there on Thursday, but the Brewers win two out of three. I know the highlight of the weekend was Ellie De La Cruz. And I understand this guy's been up for about a month and a half, if that. But if baseball really wanted to have their best players there, And baseball needs all the publicity that it could get. Because we all know this country, it's all about the NFL, college football, and yes, some NBA. But baseball is so far down the map that if they would have at least brought in Ellie De De La Cruz as a guy that would come off the bench, obviously he's not going to be a starter. We know that the fans voted for that. But we know how exciting Ellie De La Cruz would be and how even the average sports fan or maybe even the neophyte baseball fan, if De La Cruz was on the National League team, they probably would tune in to watch to see what he could do on the field. Because what you saw there on Saturday, in one inning, steals second, third, and home, basically on two pitches. And how electrifying this player is, how this guy needs to be showcased and highlighted throughout baseball. And I understand that he's from the Dominican Republic, and he's not an American player, but it doesn't matter. I don't care if the guy's from the moon. And even though there's a language barrier, and that's the only reason why I bring that up, because of the language barrier and him just trying to get adjusted to American life, but still, this guy could be from Mars. He should be on this all-star team, and this is coming from a traditionalist, a guy that needs to earn his stripes, 
But what you've seen from this guy so far, why not put him on there? You know, it's not as if the guy's been a bum or he got off to that torrid start to the point where, all right, well, he got off to that great start and now he's batting 205, so let's put him on the all-star team regardless. Nonsense. One more time. Baseball needs to put as much attention on them, especially during this sports dead zone, as they possibly can. And by not having De La Cruz there, to me, I don't want to go as far as saying it's an embarrassment, but it really is a shame. And then you had the freeway series between the Angels and Dodgers, where the Dodgers, they look like they're getting themselves into a good groove, although they're pitching. You have to wonder how they're going to put this together, and you would think that the GM, Andrew Friedman, probably has a trick or two up his sleeve to see whether or not he could get a pitcher. Now, he's not going to get a big-time pitcher like he did a couple of years ago, i.e. Max Scherzer, (laughs) and you know I'm going to get to him in a second. But for the Dodgers, I get it that they're in a division where they've dominated here over the last decade, And the Diamondbacks, they've struggled to get themselves here into the break, although they've had a very good first half, but we saw them get swept by the Mets there earlier in the week. And then over the weekend, the Diamondbacks did take two out of three against the Pirates, but the Dodgers know their way around this division. The Giants, although they played over their heads, but you would think, is this going to last any longer? To a certain extent, same for the Diamondbacks as well, as they are now in the deep end of the pool This deep in the season where they're hovering around first place, they're actually percentage points behind the Dodgers right now as the Dodgers are 51 and 38 and the D-backs are 52 and 39. And then the Padres, we know they're coming up the rear, but who knows if they have a run in them where they're going to threaten the Dodgers or even the Diamondbacks there in the NL West. But I would think the Dodgers will be in good stead. Let's see what they do before the deadline if they can bring a pitcher as we've seen with Dustin May out, no Walker Bueller in sight, Clayton Kershaw on the IL with left Shoulder tightness, so who knows how they're going to be able to navigate the rest of this regular season with Julio Urias, Tony Gonsolin, and I get it, you got Bobby Miller, a young kid who they're really banking on to see what he could do here in his rookie year, but still, they would want to get some reinforcements just to ensure themselves that, of course, they're going to get into the postseason, you would think, when it's all said and done, but with the Dodgers, it's not about getting to October, it's about getting to the end of October into November and becoming champions. So we'll wait to see what happens there. And then the flip side, the Angels. We heard last week with the injuries to Trout, going to be out four to eight weeks with that wrist. Same for Anthony Rendon, who never plays. And then Otani, who although has been in the lineup, but is not pitched due to that blister that he suffered there early in the week. And now the Angels are starting to fade here as they're a game under 500. Losers of five in a row heading into the break. And I don't think this is going to happen, but I have to throw it out there. Will the front office of the Angels even flirt with the idea of trading Shohei Otani before the deadline? Knowing that he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year and they're not going to get anything for him. I'd say that's going to be a no because he is having a monster season, not only at the plate, but also on the mound too, notwithstanding his last start. Although I think he'll be part of the final three when it comes to the Cy Young provided that he stays healthy and puts up good numbers. I don't think he's going to win it. It may be between Garrett Cole and Shane McClanahan of the Rays. But I would be shocked if Artie Marino and company decide to just pull the ripcord on the parachute and just decide to trade him for whatever prospects, whatever current players that they could possibly get and then have to deal with the fallout of the fan base 
and just controversy that it would be by them not even thinking about trying to resign this special two-way player. But that's for down the road. We'll wait to see what's going to happen here as we get closer to the deadline, which I believe is July 29th this year, which is about two weeks from this coming Thursday or Friday. No, actually Saturday. So we have that to look forward to. You had the Tigers with a combined no-hitter there on Saturday, led by Matt Manning, Jason Foley, and Alex Lang as they no-hit the Blue Jays. Unheralded, as we know, when it comes to these combined no-hitters, but it's still an achievement. It's not going to go in the annals, let's say, of a pitcher that has thrown a no-hitter, nine innings, the complete deal. But for what it's worth, the Tigers, as they're trying to go through their season and with all the bumps and bruises of what's gone on there, not only just in that division overall, but to try to make themselves relevant. And as we know that the Tigers are currently five back in the loss of the Guardians, and maybe they will think that they have an outside shot, but this is something at least they can rally around and root for. But they couldn't follow that up with a victory yesterday as they lost in the opening, or as to say, in the closeout of the first half there to the Blue Jays. But the Tigers still scuffling along, but at least they have a little highlight there for their reel come 2023. And then the Mets, they had an excellent trip up until Saturday night. And I get it that they could lose a game, but here they were on a six-game winning streak. They swept the Diamondbacks in Arizona. They won the first game there on Friday night. Thanks to them pulling it out in extra frames, they had to sweat there even after Manny Machado hit the home run to make it 7-5. But the Mets had a six-game winning streak. And as I talked about on Thursday, if the Mets were able to win three out of four from that point on, meaning that if they did win the finale against the Diamondbacks and took two out of three against San Diego to go into the All-Star break, winners of seven of eight, I would have signed for that. I would have looked at that as a good stepping stone to the second part of the year and they have a tough stretch coming out as they have to face the Dodgers at home in the first three games coming out of the break. But... I looked at it as a plus, knowing that if they did win 7 of 8, they need to, of course, win series, but they need to have those big stretches. They need to win 12 of 15, 16 of 20, 20 of 25, as I mentioned on Thursday. Because winning series are good, but you want to have that consistency. You want to be able to reel off four, five, six game winning streaks. All right, then if you lose a game or two, but then you have to reel off another five or six gamer in order to get that momentum, in order to creep back closer to 500 and to the wildcard chase. And as it was, they ran into Blake Snell there Saturday night who gave up one hit and struck out 11 and six innings. All right, fine. It would do to lose a game. No problem. But then yesterday, Max Scherzer, you're getting paid $43 million. And I get it. You got beat by Manny Machado, not once, but twice. All right. You have to tip your cap. But that is a game. If you're Max Scherzer, And the Mets, you must deliver and come home with a victory there. You know how good that would have been for the Mets? And I get it that they have an all-star break. They're going to be off for four or five days and not play a game. And who knows? To kind of get into the break, winning seven of eight, and then have to start it up all over again, albeit against a Dodger team, which if you're not up for the Dodgers, that means you're not ready to play at all. But that would have been a good feel story for the team knowing that they would have won five of six on the road, and like I mentioned, seven of eight once again, but as it is, they go into the break, losers of two in a row, they're now 42 and 48, 
They got to four games on the 500. Now there's six games on the 500. And with the Dodgers on the horizon, that's going to be a tough sell for me to think that they could go in there winning two out of three and then only become five games behind 500 as they try to plod their way not only through the season, but to somehow, some way, get themselves back into this wild card mix. So that was just a bad job by Scherzer, and he even admitted it. He had to perform better, and rightfully so. This is a guy that you're banking on to be that ace, to be that stopper, to be that guy. And to me, as I've said before, and I'll say it one more time, against good hitting lineups, I don't think Scherzer, he may have his moments, but I don't think he's going to be able to get out of these games. Yeah, he could beat up on the bad teams all he wants. He could beat up on the Rockies. He could beat up on the Nationals. He could beat up on these teams left and right, and that's fine. But that was a must-win for this team yesterday. And he didn't deliver. That's all there was to it. Five innings, five runs. Come on. You got to do better than that if you're Max Scherzer. So that's pretty much your weekend. And I know you had the draft there last night where the Pirates selected Paul Skeens, the tall right-handed kid from LSU. And then Dylan Cruz, who was his teammate, First ever in Major League Baseball history that two teammates drafted one and two in draft history. So that's obviously a trivia question or an answer to a trivia question now. So let's see how those two will play out. And they, he was drafted by the Nationals, that is, Dylan Cruz. As for the Mets, they drafted Colin Hawk, a shortstop out of Georgia from a high school in that area. Or in that state, I should say. Were there not any pitchers available? Have you looked at your roster to see that there's a guy named Francisco Lindor who signed for the next eight years, who plays the position, and then you have a guy that's waiting in the wings who may be trade bait at some point in a one Ronnie Mauricio? So no, they go ahead and draft another shortstop. Makes no sense. This team needs pitching. They tried to buy pitchers, and what's gone wrong for them this year is because either they haven't been able to stay healthy, a la Justin Verlander in the first month of the year, or Scherzer, as I just talked about here over the last couple of minutes, they need to draft pitching. I guess there wasn't a decent pitcher that was available there at the bottom of the first round that they could have at least said, hey, we got to start rebuilding not only the farm system, but also our pitching depth. I guess that went out the window. So Hawk is your guy, and even the Yankees for that matter, knowing that they have Anthony Volpe in the seam where 21 years of age, I understand he's not batting too well, but he's showing you some pop. But what do they do? They draft a shortstop from a prep school in Florida by the name of George Lombard Jr. And I get it that there are scouts that are on the case and in ball fields throughout this country and are more privy to what's going on more than I am, that's for sure. But you draft a kid who plays shortstop, but you just brought up a kid who's going to be the, you would think, heir apparent to Derek Jeter at that position. I understand you had Isaiah Kainer-Falefa and Didi Gregorius before him, but to have that guy to be your mainstay for a decade plus, you figure Volpe's going to be that guy, but they draft a shortstop? I don't know. That That's just me. That's how I look at it. But who am I to say? I'm just a podcast host from afar trying to dissect these things. To me, that's like the Spurs drafting Victor Wembanyama, And then next year, what are they going to do? They're going to draft another big man. I mean, Seriously? So that's what I have with baseball as we close out the first half. And come Thursday, I'll get into some second half prognostications, what certain teams may do, pretenders, contenders. I'll even go through my over-under numbers, which I haven't done since March 30th. 
So we'll see where those numbers lie as we're 90-plus games into the season. And now that we have the All-Star break as a respite, we can put up our feet a little bit. Maybe if you're into it, watch the All-Star game tomorrow night and even the Home Run Derby tonight. So that's what we have with baseball as they take their pause for their Midsummer Classic. Now as I put on my high tops and get to the NBA, and let's get right to it. I know I tried to, I'm not going to say dissect this, but try to reveal what this NBA in-season tournament was to be. And as it was, it was very vague. Yes, they talked about it being a World Cup-style tournament, which would take place December 7th through 9th, which didn't really make a a lot of sense at the time because I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, this is taking place over three days and they're going to have all these teams play and all these different groups and how is this going to unfold? And now that we get a better idea as it was announced there Saturday or Saturday evening to where this tournament is going to start November 3rd. Now we know that the season usually starts on that third Tuesday of the month And the schedule has not come out yet, but you would think that the Denver Nuggets will have the second time slot. You would think around 10 p.m. as they'll get the rings and the banner raised to the rafters there at the Ball Arena. And then the first game will probably be your Eastern Conference matchup between where you may get Sixers, Bucks, Celtics. Any one of those three teams will be the NBA season opener. But for this tournament, which again, starts November 3rd. There's going to be group play, all 30 teams involved, six groups. Three East, three West, random draw based on last year's regular season record. So you're going to have these six groups where all these teams are going to play. And when it's all said and done, you're going to have each team in a group play each other. Four games, two home, two away. These games will be played on Tuesday and Friday in November. So it's not as if they're going to play, let's just throw out two teams. Let's say if the Celtics, and it's all based on winning percentages, but let's say Celtics end up playing, I'll say the Wizards, just for this discussion. And they're going to play four times during that month. And then what happens is, is that each group team that wins or has the best record will be able to move on. So when that happens, the teams that move on, then you're going to have the next best record in those groups are going to be classified as wild cards. So again, these six groups, three in the East, three in the West. So you'll have whomever had the best record in, let's say, one, two, and three group in the East and four, five, six in the West. How that's going to get broken down is that you'll have the best record out of the, let's say, in group one, Then you have the two wild cards in group two and three. Same for the West. Then they're going to play in a knockout round. Eight teams, single elimination. With the last four standing to be played in Vegas, December 7th and 9th. So you'll have your semifinal there on the 7th in Vegas. And then the championship game on the 9th to where the winner is going to win the first ever NBA Cup. And the only thing that comes to mind for me is, seriously... Has this what the NBA has boiled down and has come to? And Adam Silver had said that, yes, this has been in the making over the past decade and a half. We've thought about this and try to break it down as best as possible. And as I mentioned Thursday, and I'll say it right here, the only reason why that they're having this tournament, this World Cup style 
in-season deal is just to generate any type of buzz, publicity, and attention to an NBA season that after opening night, which people will be interested in to see, especially with the Nuggets, whomever they play, and it'll probably be the Lakers, or maybe even the Spurs for that matter, so they could showcase Wembenyama the first night, because the Spurs, you would think they're going to be awful, and they're not going to have a lot of national primetime games, and you would think maybe they'll have a couple or sprinkled throughout TNT, maybe an ABC game here and there, but might as well do it early, because as you get deeper into the season, when the Spurs are, let's say, 11-36, and 36, are you really going to showcase Wembenyama at that point? But after that, the NBA goes off into the wilderness. Until Christmas Day, well, you have the five games, and then they'll be in the weeds up until after the Super Bowl. But with that being said, they're going to have this tournament only because they could generate whatever publicity that they could desperately get in the middle of an NFL season. And I don't even know the dates between the 5th and the 7th. It has to be during the middle of the week. I would think Tuesday through Thursday. Because if it's on a weekend, the NFL and college football is just going to blow right past it. So, there isn't much more I could get into when it comes to this because we have to see this unfold to really get a better feel. And me going back to being a traditionalist, I don't like it. I can see why the NBA is doing this. Because of what I just mentioned about the attention, the publicity to generate just something for their sport in the early part of their season. But it comes across as gimmicky. First ever NBA Cup? Seriously? So whomever wins that? Could you imagine, let's say, a team that's won championships over the last few years? What if the Lakers win the NBA Cup? Is that something to really celebrate that they're going to hoist over their heads? The Celtics? I mean, seriously, is a Knicks fan who hasn't won a championship in 50 years, they're going to be geeked up if they happen to win the NBA Cup? Uh, Come on, serious? Anyway, let me move on. And that's just for right now. Maybe I'll warm up to it come November 3rd and try to see if I can get a better feel for it at that time. And then when we get to early December and the knockout pool with the final team, I don't know. Right now, again, super gimmicky. I mean, there's no other way to cut it. An NBA cup? All right, let me let go of that. Speaking of the Spurs... Greg Popovich, five years, $80 million, or a little bit north of that as he gets his extension. And why not? He has a generational player right in front of him. So you think he's going to jump ship now? Absolutely not. Highest paid coach in the sport by far. We saw what Monty Williams got there earlier this summer or spring where he got five for 78 and a half. So the Spurs eclipsed that, and rightfully so. NBA's all-time winning as coach. Who knows how much more wins he's going to have under his belt, especially with this kid on his team. So let's see what happens there. And I am not, let's cut right to it, going to get into anything that's happened throughout Summer League. If you've listened to me over the last few years, you know I do not pay attention to what goes on. Barring a major injury, as we saw last year with Chet Holmgren, the kid from Gonzaga who got drafted by the Thunder. But for Summer League overall, on a whole, and I know Scoot Henderson and Amen Thompson both got injured here when they matched up against one another there on Friday night. Scoot Henderson with a right shoulder and Thompson with a left ankle in their first ever Summer League performances, but who knows when they're going to come back. I'm sure they're going to treat these kids with quote-unquote kid gloves, and who knows if you're going to even see them again throughout the course of the next week where I believe the Summer League ends a week from today. 
I am not going to get into every little thing that Victor Wembanyama does, whether he scored nine points there on Friday night. All right, big whoop. He had an underwhelming performance or the 27 points he got there last night. All right, great. Fantastic. If he puts up 50 and 25, then maybe call me. But even then, I'll still say it's against Summer League guys. And I'm sure a lot of those guys that are playing on those rosters throughout the course of the next week or so, they're not even going to make an NBA roster. They might as well have me out there. But between that and this encounter, or maybe, dare I even say, dust-up between Britney Spears and Victor Wembanyama, I'm even shocked that Britney Spears knows who Victor Wembanyama is. Let's call it as we see it. As he tried to get the attention of the Wonder Kid, and for whatever the reason, security allegedly pushed Britney Spears, but it happened to be Spears' security team. Who cares? And this video, I please... They can show that video, they pop it on my TV right now, I would turn it off. Much ado about nothing, just a generated story, just a, again, that's just a new cycle in the world we live in in 2023. Now, I can see if somebody got hurt, or somebody got injured, or fatally wounded, something like that, and that's extreme, I get it, but then it's a different story. But as far as, they cross paths at a hotel in Vegas somewhere, and she tried to reach out to him or whatever and then security got involved or what that's a story so that's what I got with the NBA as we move along here with the summer nothing with James Harden or Damian Lillard as of yet of course you know I'll keep you guys apprised on the latest there let's see if anything happens between now and Thursday I wouldn't expect it but stranger things have happened as we know now as I lace up my skates and Go to the NHL. You had a big move there yesterday where Ottawa traded Alex DeBrincat, the former Chicago Blackhawk, to the Detroit Red Wings for a young defenseman, a prospect in their system, Donovan Sobrango, Dominic Kabulek, or Kabalik, can't even pronounce his name. Also was packaged as well as picks, including a conditional first rounder next year. And the Red Wings signed him four years, $31.5 million. So let's see if DeBrincat could give some infusion and life to a Red Wing team that have certainly have been on nobody's radar. And we know that the Red Wings are one of the cornerstone franchises in the NHL. So let's see if the move by DeBrincat going to Detroit, to the Motor City, could add some life and rejuvenate that fan base in Hockeytown, USA. And then you had Anze Kopitar, the longtime LA King, extend his deal for three more years. So he's going to play through 25-26 and we know Kopitar, part of those two Stanley Cup teams, has been on there forever. And good for him as he's going to ride out the rest of his hockey career there in L.A. And then in Wimbledon, you have some interesting stories there. As I get my tennis racket and lace up my tennis kicks. Yesterday, you had some controversy surrounding Victoria Azarenka, the former women's number one player in the world. As she lost in a very good match to Elena Svitolina. She actually was down Svitolina 2-6 after the first set, but then came back to win 6-4, 7-6-9 in the tiebreak in the final set. And after the match was over, Azarenka walked over to the official, shook hands, and then acknowledged Svitolina from afar by waving at her without a handshake. And as Azarenka was walking off the court, as Svitolina was getting... A lot of praise from the Wimbledon crowd. Azarenka walking to the locker room 
had a shower of booze directed toward her, and even as Arenka was perplexed, as wondering where the booze were coming from, and as we found out there in the post-game match where she was incredulous and said that, based on Svitolina saying that she was not going to shake any players from Russia or Belarus, and that's where Azarenka's from, Belarus. Obviously, we know the strife between Ukraine and Russia and that part of the world that's been gone on over the last year and a half. And even Svitolina had admitted that she wasn't going to do that, shake any players that played and come from that region. And Azarenka was just dumbfounded. So that was a bad job by the Old England Club or the fans that watched that match and booed Azarenka off the court. And Azarenka did acknowledge, she waved, didn't come across as a sourpuss or a spoil sport by any stretch. And that's just a bad job. You would think if those are real tennis fans, they would know what's going on with Svitolina and know where Azarenka comes from. But it was almost as if they got ahead of themselves by just booing him, knowing that, wait a minute, there wasn't a handshake, a hug, anything like that, where they didn't even know the story. So you got to wonder whether or not those fans that were in participation, are they even tennis fans for that matter, knowing that Svitolina was going to stand firm with her case of not shaking any players from Russia or Belarus and unwarranted towards Azarenka to get booed and really get her off into the outside of this tournament and into the U.S. Open as with her hands up in the air like, what the hell did I do? So unfair towards Azarenka and just a terrible job by the fans there. I mean, there's no other way to cut it. And next up is Vitalina, even after that big performance there. Iga Swiatek, who right now is looking like she's going to be a buzzsaw to go through this tournament. Although Jessica Pagula's played very well, so you got to give it up to her. Let's see if she could be a threat to get to a semifinal, and even a final for that matter, because Swiatek by far has been the best women's player in the world. So we'll get to see what happens there. Anj Jabour is still alive as of right this moment. So we'll see where Jabour ends up, as she's been the bridesmaid and never the bride when it comes to winning a Grand Slam tournament. So you have some... Intriguing storylines heading into the second week of Wimbledon. And the men's is pretty much status quo. Although if you're Francis Tiafo, you have to be highly disappointed in your performance there against Grigor Dimitrov as he was just dominated in straight sets. What was it? 6-2, 6-3, 6-2. And even Tiafo, upon his own admission, said that he was ready to take the next step. He wanted to win this tournament. He wanted to get deep and maybe even approach a semifinal, even get to a final, and he falls way short of that, and now has to sit on this, not only for another year, to get back to Wimbledon, to see if he can redeem himself, but also for the US Open, and we don't know last year, he had that great epic performance against Carlos Alcaraz there, on that Friday night, but for Tiafo, a bit of disappointment, in how he performed here, and again, he's going to have to sit with this, at least for a couple of months, or really six or seven weeks, leading up to the US Open, but, more so another year until he gets back to the Old England Club to see if he could get some sort of redemption and go deeper into the tournament than he did this year. Besides that, you got nothing else to dive into. I know Alcaraz had his hands full early on in that match against Nicholas Jari, but he did win in four sets. He's going to face Matteo Berrettini and not Alexander Zverev, who beat Zverev in three sets, the last two on tiebreak sets. Of course, Novak Djokovic still alive, and a lot of people are waiting to see if Djokovic and Alcaraz will meet up there in the final. You still have six more days to get to that, 
And obviously, we have another podcast upcoming. So let's see where the lay of the land is for the men's side of this tournament to see where we'll be at at that time heading into the weekend toward the semifinal and the final. And then, of course, a week from today, we'll recap it all to see whether or not Novak Djokovic will win the first three Grand Slam tournaments of the year to see if he can embark on a calendar Grand Slam that he didn't do two years ago. Or will Carlos Alcaraz shake off that French Open performance that he had against Novak Djokovic, cramping and just nerves abound and see if he could also come out on top to win his first Wimbledon and also still be that number one player in the world, which right now I think it should be Djokovic based on what he did at the French. But as it is, if Alcaraz is victorious, he'll be able to be number one and stay there. A lot of Wimbledon, a lot of tennis left and we'll recap what will take place between now and then on Thursday and then let's see what happens come a week from now when the third Grand Slam tournament will be in the books that'll do it my good people another episode in the books as always thank you so much for stopping by passing by carving out some time out of your precious day to listen to me babble about what goes on in the world of sports if you haven't done so please subscribe rate and review throw me a few stars write a review I greatly appreciate it Hit me up on any of my socials, question, comment, suggestion. Please subscribe on my YouTube channel, at JReels. Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the JReels Podcast. Twitter, JReels1, just a number. And if you want to go the old-fashioned route without the DMs, the direct messages, you could send me an email at the Podcast at gmail.com. Please hit me up. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And I'll hold off on the Patreon because I've given... Very little to no attention toward that platform. So I understand each and every week and I probably should still put it out there. But I'll put it on pause for now because until I gain a little traction and some consistency on that platform, dealing with all the other social media platforms, the website and everything that this one man operation does, yours truly that is of course, I understand that I need to put more effort and time into that. So I'll hold off on that for now. But patreon.com slash the JReels podcast, which I've been belaboring the point for the last God knows how long. If you want to go there, please feel free to do so. But we'll revisit that down the road because people, whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. It's in the blood since birth, in the DNA, talking sports, watching, analyzing, reviewing, critiquing, praising, thoughts opinions, feelings, fire, passion, fury, energy, discussing anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Center, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.